Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast. This podcast series was designed to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters. We cover a variety of topics that will help you become more confident and comfortable in the field while hunting deer. In this episode, I catch up with Clint Campbell, the host of the Truth from the Stand podcast, to talk about building on a deer season's worth of experience. I believe one of the things that separates good deer hunters from great deer hunters is the ability to reflect on the experience we have and build on that moving forward. So Clint and I cover how he makes the most of all that he learns during the course of a deer season. It's a great conversation, one where I certainly learned a lot. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, joining me on the show today is Clint Campbell from the Truth From The Stand podcast. How you doing, Clint? I'm doing good, man. How you, uh, how you doing? I know we're both, uh, <clears throat> I'll give a caveat or a disclaimer now. I'm going to try to refrain from launching into any uh, coughing attacks. We're both recovering from the corona, so <laughs> Dude, we, you go ahead and make that caveat for both of us because this is this could be really interesting. We're both recovering from COVID. Yeah, we were supposed to, in all truthfulness, uh, we were supposed to record this like a week ago, and I messaged you, and I, not that I felt good that you had COVID, but I I hate canceling anything. And uh, when I when I sent you a message, it was like, hey, uh, you know, can we move this? Because I'm I feel like I'm, I'm like warmed over death. You know, <laughs> you're like, Hey, I got it too. And I was like, perfect. Let's do this like in a week. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I was actually considering canceling, but I was like, nah, I can make it work. Like I, I can, I can press through. And then I got your message and I, I went and showed my wife. I was like, ha, he's got COVID too. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm glad you had it. Yeah, no, I, but I appreciate you having me on, man. Looking forward to it. Yeah, this is uh this is really exciting. So this is the how to hunt deer podcast. We're covering uh, a lot of um, what some folks may consider pretty basic, um, basic information, but at the same time, this is stuff that's good for a refresher for anybody. Uh, you know, deer seasons are closing, uh, around the nation. And, uh, what I want to talk about today is how do we stop and capitalize on, uh, what we've learned from the year that is now behind us, right? Like, so we're at that time of the year, deer pressure is setting in as other people have, have said, where, uh, you know, it's not quite time to really get out and look for sheds yet. Turkey season is way off on the horizon. We've still got a lot of time. Um, so how do we stop and capitalize on our experience this year? And so I wanted to get you on and sort of throw out these questions to you and say, you know, what, what are the kinds of questions? What is your thought process in early February as you're analyzing the year behind you now? Right. Yeah, I mean... It really depends, you know, uh, on the context of the season that I just, that I just had. Right. I think sometimes, um, you know, if you've had a successful season, which I hope, you know, folks out there listening have, uh, have had a successful season this past year, we oftentimes don't dive too deep into any of the miscues because we kind of gloss over it with a filled tag. Right. <laughs> That's kind of like the, yeah, you know, it's, you know, so I would say like the first thing is regardless of, you know, whatever I did or didn't do in, in 2021 in this case or whatever year it is. Um, I try to take the same kind of measured approach of 
focusing on the things where I, where I made a miscue or I, or I didn't think through something, you know, correctly. Um, and I typically have like a process that I go through. That's pretty, it's pretty standard for me pretty much every year that I go through. Like the first thing I'll always do is kind of go through all my trail camera inventory. You know, is the first thing I do is I, is I clean all that up. Um, and I use some software and stuff to, to kind of organize that stuff. I use something, a buddy of mine owns the company. I don't really work with them at all. It's just, he's a good dude. It's called deer lab and it's an online like application, so, uh, application that you use. And it helps me organize all my trail camera photos and, and stuff like that. And, uh, organize all my inventory and I can look at like wind direction and wind map deer. And I can look at heat maps or if they're hitting multiple cameras in like in an area and stuff like that. So I start to really kind of understand like higher level like what were the trends of the deer that i was kind of focusing on for the year and in specific areas just high level oh i saw them here i saw them here or maybe like i have pictures of them but maybe like it's a lot of nocturnal pictures especially if it's a property that's new to me i'm like okay well i found deer um but it seems to be the areas that i'm hanging cameras and i'm spending time in they're they're getting there at dark so i need to figure out where they're at in daylight so i've qualified the place with the quality of deer that i want but maybe, you know, I'm just not in the right spot to, to kill. And so that's kind of always the, uh, that's always the first thing I do. And then I start to kind of think about, did I, did I hunt smart this year? You know, and there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. You know, did you, you know, were you uh, in the right place at the right time? That's not necessarily always a great measure. You know, for me, hunting smart is, is that, whenever I walked into a place to hunt, did I have as many variables as I could possibly put in my favor, in my favor for that particular day, right? So did I make any mistakes like whenever I was walking in that my access wasn't good? Or maybe it was good, but it just wasn't good for that particular day because maybe the wind was wrong for that access. You know, did, uh, you know, was I making sure not to cross deer trails, especially whenever I was getting close to wherever I was going to be, you know, potentially set up, you know, little things like that, that you just kind of, sometimes I were looking at the heat of the moment. Was I checking the wind often enough as I was walking in, making sure nothing was switching on me before I moved, you know, was I walking slowly enough as I was kind of walking through the timber to make sure that I was kind of observing and scouting my way in, you know, or, did, or, or were there hunts where I just kind of rushed my way into my tree, you know, like those are some of the questions that like the high level questions I'll start to think about. And then of course, you know, the next step after that then for me is like, I start to really look at specific hunts that I had where I could kind of like take, take it apart. Right. So, and, and that really comes, comes to light whenever you have encounters and stuff like that, you know, and I'm, and I'm talking about not even just buck encounters, but doe encounters, you know, to me, those are just as important because they can be the craftiest animal in the woods a lot of times, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially if you get an old doe. Um, and so, you know, I'll kind of think about like what did those encounters look like? The places that I was set up, did I have adequate cover, you know, or was I getting picked off in a tree or whatever, whatever the case was, were the deer approaching from the, given the wind that I was setting up on, were the deer approaching from where I thought they would, you know, do I have that kind of, do I have that figured out? Um, when I'm in the tree, it's like, is, is the, are the prevailing wind and thermal, are they working the way I think that they're going to work and give me the wind direction that I'm anticipating or not, you know, was the pressure what I thought it was going to be. Did someone access from a different area that I thought that they wouldn't access from like all those little things that I see any more flagging tape up than I had seen previously when I was scouting or whatever I had hunted there previously. And so I really kind of try to go through and analyze like each aspect of it 
And then, you know, the final kind of part of that is, is like when I did have encounters, if I did have opportunities, you know, and if I didn't get an arrow off, <clears throat> why didn't I get the arrow off? What happened? Like, why didn't I have a filled tag? If I've put, and this was a case for me this year, it's like, I put myself within 15 yards of, of multiple mature deer and did not get one arrow off. And so I had to really kind of start to think about, that's what I'm going through now is thinking about, okay, each hunt, like where was the fatal mistake? Some of them were really obvious. You and I talked a little bit about, about it offline before we started recording. Some of it was just, you know, again, making a rookie mistake, you know, it's like, and for anyone out there who's a, a newer hunter, you know, it happens to all of us, you know, at, at some point. And this was, I just didn't draw my bow in time as I was figuring out what deer it was that was approaching me. Right. And that's something that, I talked about this with Josh Elderton, the most recent podcast that I just did. Um, we talked about, you know, cause he's hunting a lot with his son and his son's going through a lot of those growing pains you do as like a 13 year old. Mm. Oh yeah. Wanting to bow hunt and wanting to start to kill, not just does, but wanting to kill bucks, you know, and making some of those mistakes that Josh is watching him make. And it's like a, a light bulb moment of him, for him as a reminder, like there's so many things that happen in a bow hunt when you get to that critical moment that we just kind of take for granted that newer hunters, like it's, it's almost stepwise for them. And it's a process. It's still a process for people who've been doing it for a while, but you've just done it so often. And, and like, you know, when to draw, you know, when you can get away with a little bit of movement, you know what I mean? Things like things like that, like you learn over time how to gauge. Um, but even still, it's like, I'm a great example of that. Like I didn't get my bow drawn in time and I had to watch one of my shooters just walk out of my life this year. And it was a, an 18 <laughs> yard shot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. so, you know, it's like, that's a good example. And that was a learning opportunity for me. And that's one thing I thought about. It's like, I replayed that hunt in my mind over and over again of like, when was the time, when was the right time to draw? Because you don't want to draw too early because you get stuck. Right. And then you might have to yep. look down or you make a bad shot because you're fatigued or whatever but you don't want to draw too late because you don't want to get picked off, you know? And so it's like, I mean, I replayed that hunt in my mind over and over again, thousands of times <laughs> trying to pinpoint when would have been the right time to draw Like, When should I have drawn my bow, you know? Sure. And so those are just some of the questions that I start to, you know, start to ask myself and, you know, it goes a little further than that whenever I start to get ready to scout and, and, and things of that nature. But, you know, for people who are maybe newer to it, like, those are the places I would start is just honest assessment of your approach were you giving yourself the best chance or were you kind of killing most people kill a hunt <clears throat> before they ever get to their, get to their tree, you know, with bad access and, and, and a bad approach and, you know, or, or making too much noise or, or whatever the case is, you know, so for people who are, you know, maybe newer, it's like, that's the one thing I would always kind of focus on early is just, if your access isn't right, you're really not giving yourself a, even a chance. Yeah. Uh, and so start there and analyze that or you it's correctly and then move on to the next step sure man you've given me <clears throat> i think i think i've got a whole episode's worth of stuff here uh <laughs> to dive into so i want to pick, pick sort of pick apart i guess this answer a little bit further you gave basically four different different pieces here so i want to i want to back up just a little bit mm -hmm. uh and talk a little bit about that trail camera inventory so uh this is the first year that i have paid a lot of attention to my own trail camera inventory. Um, and what I mean by that is taking that information, well, yeah, taking that information, storing it, organizing it, having it to where I, I can use it again for the 2022 archery season, right? Like rather than 
just the real-time information. I, I want to start to build and look at trends that I'm noticing. What does that look like for you? Like, how are you organizing uh, all of your pictures? You know, <clears throat> if there's a guy that went out this year maybe and bought his, let's say, first, second, third camera, something like that, and he's just got a handful of them, it may not seem like a whole, whole lot of data right now, but very quickly, two, three, four years into it, it's all of a sudden a whole lot of data that, that you can really act on. So what does that organizational process look like for you with, uh, with Deer Lab? Yeah, so <clears throat> the one thing I'll say is that, you know, I, I do run a lot of cameras. You know, that's the one thing I will say. However, you know, having really good actionable data requires you to have a camera in the right spot and not a lot of cam, not necessarily a lot of cameras. Yep. So, and, and, and so I guess I'll tackle the, the deer lab stuff first and we can kind of move into like what I mean by that. But the deer lab stuff is really just a way for me to aggregate, you know, deer that I can clearly identify, whether it's like an antler characteristic, whether it's like a notch in their ear or whatever of deer I want to follow, you know what I mean? I'll kind of group them in like, everyone that's a shooter is like the universe. You know, if you're talking about data, I'm a little bit of a data nerd. I'm, I'm a digital strategist by trade. That's what I do for a living. So everything is like data in segments and audience segments. So it's like, I'll have a universe of like every shooter on that camera or on a property. And then I'll essentially for each camera, if I find that deer on that camera, it's like, I'll tag them as a shooter, but then if they are unique, I'll tag them as like an identifier. Right. So it might be like lefty. I typically don't name my deer. I name them for the purposes of like <laughs> aggregating and filtering the the pictures and the data, you know, sure. like I might name it like, you know, eight point uh, left ear notch or eight point, you know, tall tine or whatever it is. And I'll kind of create a profile for each one of those unique deer that I specifically want to follow. And so from there, it's like, I might have like seven or eight shooters in general on a property, just making up a number. But within that, I might only have like three deer that I'm going to actually follow and try to kill this year, you know? And so I'll uniquely name them and then I'll, and I'll tag them with a unique name. That way I can follow them across all the different trail cameras that I have if they hit any of the other, any of the other trail cameras. And then from there, I can get a sense of like, you know, where are they daylighting? Are they daylighting in different areas, you know, on, di on diff in different camera areas? Doesn't mean I'm going to hunt the camera spot. I might look for a terrain feature that they might be kill more killable in versus the actual spot that the camera's hung in. But that camera's at least telling me that he's in the area, you know, um, in daylight, might like a northeast wind, you know, and it's consistently in the envelope of like 4 to 6 p.m. or 3 to 6 p.m. or whatever it is, right? So I can get a really good idea. And it just allows me as a working guy that works a normal nine-to-five job to know when my best opportunities are going to be. Now, I don't really use that data in a given year. I more play off the idea of, of annual data. So watching specific deer is kind of one aspect of it. Um, and I, and I do do that, but the other aspect, and this is why I was saying that, you know, having a camera placed at the right spot is way, you'll get way better Intel and way better data than you will if you have five cameras and, and they're all in kind of average to below average placements. Right. And the reason I say that is, is I'm a big, kind of community scrape hunter. I follow a lot of the kind of teachings, if you will, of John Eberhardt in that, in that okay. regard, you know, yep. I hunt a lot of primary scrapes or I'll certainly be set up close to them as, you know, when I can find them. And what I've started doing as opposed to like, you know, I'm following deer. Yes, but I'm really following specific locations and, and how they react during different times of the year. 
right? So for example, it's like, I know for me, you know, and this takes like a year or two of watching a specific spot. It's like, I'll hang a camera on a place where I'm like, this looks like a, a community scrape, a licking branch close to bedding cover, you know, adjacent to bedding or whatever the case is. Um, oftentimes outside of doe bedding. And, uh, and I'll watch that, <clears throat> that location with a, with a trail camera for like a full season, you know, and I'll kind of get the ebb and flow of like when deer get really active in that area and when they kind of slow down. Right. And you'll start to be able to tell, like, if you just even watch it in real time, it's like when you start to see some does hit those scrapes and stuff like that, it's like, okay, it's starting to warm up. They're communicating more often. It's just a matter of time now until you start to see, you know, bucks hit it and or more mature bucks. Right. And so what I've started doing is just kind of following these areas. And this really kind of helps me be super strategic with the limited amount of time that I have as a working guy, because I've, I'm able to kind of over the course of like two to three years of watching a handful of these kind of community scrape locations or specific kind of terrain features that might funnel to like a bedding area or to like a, a really good, like <clears throat> white oak crop or, you know, white oak trees or whatever the case is for for acorns in, in October, I'm able to kind of narrow it down to like, man, it's a three day window in October and it's a two day window in November is like, mm. if I'm going to hunt it, those are the five days that I'm going to have above average odds of seeing the, the caliber of deer that I want to see in those spots. Right. And so I end up hunt, I end up hunt more so dates than I do specific deer. Um, mm, and that yeah. really kind of yep. moved out for me like the past two years, because I'm having my best encounters during the October lull, because I know these particular areas, you know, over watching it for two seasons that I typically get the first mature buck daylight walking around these specific areas sometime between like the 13th and the 16th or 13th and the 18th, you know, or 15th to the 18th. Like it could be like one day, two days on either side, but that's typically the time frame. And so a lot of times I'll focus, you know, a lot of my hunting around here that like 13th to 22nd time frame because I know that those cameras turn on and at specific times. And mm. there's, there's a little bit of biology to that as well, especially when you kind of get to November because does have the same estrus date every year. You know, that's why the rut's the same time every year. They could be slightly different. Some days does come in a little earlier, some does don't. But if you have a community scrape outside of a doe bedding area, right, and those does usually start to heat up a little bit mid-October, say around the 15th or 16th, like you're always going to have one somewhere that's going to come in. If you can find that spot where one comes in like earlier or whatever, that doe family group is going to keep the estrus date of the, of the doe that has birthed those, those, those fawns. They pass yep. the estrus date to their fawns. So it stands a good chance, even if that doe gets killed, one of the does within that family group is going to keep that estrus date really close to what the mom had. And so that area is always going to kind of be a prime spot during that same kind of window. Right. And so that's what I base a lot of like my October hunting on is, is that mid October hunting, of course, beds and stuff like that. I'm just not the best bed hunter in the world. Um, I try to get better at that every year, but you know, what I've found is like focusing on bedding cover community scrapes and watching for those ones that are truly community scrapes that are being used all year round and figuring out what that small, those small windows are that they're, they're going to be kind of primed and not just in last week of October, because everyone's going to be in the woods during that time and have to deal with pressure. I'd rather do it earlier and kind of know what that three day window looks like and go in there when there isn't anybody in there. Sure. So on, on this annual data, which this is, this is the first year um, that I've really put a lot of effort into hunting off of last year's 
trail camera data and sort of doing like you did in hunting dates Mm -hmm. and uh man it was on fire i mean it was just it was phenomenal um i ended up tagging out and then left cameras up in the same spots as last year and i'm talking deer within a day or two uh of what i what i had last year the same exact uh, movement patterns. Yeah, that, that the I one that I, the one that I didn't get drawn on, um, really awesome spot that I found like probably two years ago scouting and last, not this past season, but I guess it was 2020 was the first year that I hunted it and I watched it with cameras. And I, I just kind of noticed that like, man, the first big deer that daylighted daylighted on the 15th, like in this particular area. And then around that same time within like a two, three day window, there's a lot of other mature bucks that kind of filtered through either like just after dark or just before daylight is all on the cusp at one daylighted with like about 45 minutes left of daylight. And I was like, and I knew it was a community script. Cause I mean, I leave it on that a camera on that scrape all year round and, and deer hitting it spring, summer, fall, doesn't matter. Right. Just the frequency okay. drops off obviously after like November and stuff like that. But you know, they're hitting it throughout the year, you know, continually. And so I just kind of said to myself, I was like, man, I was like, I bet that that date's going to hold true. I was like, I bet there's, oh, that's going to come in, you know, that third week of October, you know, right before that last kind of prime time week that everyone wants to be in the woods. I was like, and I bet there's going to be one that daylights around that time frame. And it was within a day. I was there on the, I think he daylighted on the 15th and I hunted the 16th, I think. So he wow. daylighted on the 15th last year. This year I hunted on the 16th. And the shooter came through at three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. So is there anything else that you're paying attention to besides the dates? So uh, one, one question that I had was I also had basically the exact same weather conditions for this mm-hmm. uh, really two week span that I was paying a lot of attention to basically the exact same weather pattern as, as last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so are, 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 does that factor in to that at all? Or is it, are, is it really just about the dates? It's really just about the dates, to be honest with you. I mean, weather always helps. Um, and I'm not saying that weather isn't a driver that, you know, it's like, I, I wish I was able to pay more close attention to the weather, but the reality is, is again, I'm a working guy. So whenever the dates are right, you know, I gotta, I gotta be out there. You know what I mean? If yep. I have the time, yep. you know, cause I may not have the time next week or whatever, whatever the case is. So for me, it is really about the dates um, around those things. But thinking back on it, like the weather was pretty, uh, pretty consistent this year with what it was with what it was last year. I mean, in October, you're not going to get huge swings necessarily. You know, sure. you might get a small drop here. There. So there, it wasn't like last year was a cold front and this year was a cold front. You know, it it might have been a couple degrees difference or whatever the case was, but it wasn't anything significant that would have said like, oh man, there's a 15 degree drop. I'm out today. You know, it yeah, wasn't, yeah wasn't anything like, um, wasn't anything like that, but more importantly than anything is that the wind has to be right. You know, so if I don't get the right wind in that window, you know, then I'm like, then I'm not hunting it. You know what I mean? So that's why it's like, I try to have, <clears throat> I hang cameras over scrapes when I find them, when I'm scouting in the off season, because like in the postseason, because if I see deer hitting it in like, so I'll go start scouting here at like the end of February, roughly like when I, a little bit of the snow melts, and I'll start hanging cameras then over scrapes. Okay. If I find a scrape that looks like it has a licking branch and I'm like, man, this is close to some really thick cover. I bet there's bedding in there. I'll hang a camera right now because I'll come back in like June to check it for like the beginnings of velvet. You know what I mean? And if deer are hitting it in the winter and spring, then I know that that's a, like that's a community scrape. You know what I mean? Like they're using it all year round. So bingo, I got it. If they're not, 
then I just take the camera down and I know it's like, this is a rut spot. Like this is a spot that like, if I'm getting baffled by, by what's going on, this spot probably opens up sometime the last week of October would be my guess. I don't know that for sure, but that's, that's what sure. I would put a flyer on, you know? Okay. All right. So we're here at the end of the year. We're taking all of our uh, trail camera data. We're going to either use something like deer lab that helps us uh, store all of this, or we're just going to create some folders and files on our computer, going to stash that stuff away so that we can capitalize on it. Uh, for next year, we're going to pay a lot of attention to those dates. The next step that you talked about was asking, uh, did I hunt smart this year? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, and you, you mentioned a little bit about right place, right time. Uh, you talked a little bit about getting the variables, right? You talked a lot about access. So let's dive in, uh, to that question real bit, real quick. Um, did I hunt smart this year? Flesh that out for me. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that certainly helped me hunt smarter this year, and I'm not a big, like, you know, I try to like rely as much as I, it probably sounds like I'm a little bit of a tech nerd and I, and I somewhat am, but it's very like very, <laughs> very specific things. Like deer lab just does a really good job of helping me organize. Otherwise like my folders are a mess on my computer. Sure. Um, and then like I use Spartan Forge as like my map, you know, app software that I use. Um, and you know, there's different things out there that have like algorithms and things like that, that try to tell you like when deer are going to move and what type of movement there's going to be based on weather and so on and so forth. What they do really well is they're actually using colored deer data. And so they're actually able to look in your area specific to your area in the colored deer that are in your area that they have in the database. They're able to tell you what their movement patterns were based on those variables, right? Like the, the weather, the wind, so on and so forth, and kind of tell you like the priority areas, like, is it a, a day that like uh, historically the collared deer data t- says that this date historically with these conditions, deer are using more of their range. And so now that means if there's a deer in the area that I know of, it's like, and, and the wind isn't right for me to hunt that community scrape, but, but the other variables are kind of right for that deer to potentially move a further distance. Then I know that I can hunt one of those setups a little further away from where I think he's his core area is and be able to kind of stay true to and, and play the wind still. I don't have to hunt right on top of where the primary spot is. I can hunt off of it because now I know that I'm, I have a better chance of that deer moving a further distance. So that means I can yep. pick a spot where the wind is right for me, but still be able to hunt that deer. You know what I mean? Yep. So, so if, yeah. So if I understand that correctly, he, that deer is going to be, uh, the, those trends from the collared deer are going to show that those deer have used a, a larger part of their range yeah. during these particular vari- variables. On this, and so this, and like, this may be the, de- the day that he makes it to the white oaks before dark or to the right. edge of the soybean field before dark. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And, and it's gotcha. not steadfast. It's not like the gospel. Sure. These are trends, right? And it's, so it's, what it's saying is, is that collared deer data in your zip code, right? Have a proclivity to move a certain amount of distance based on these variables. So on the 15th of October, for example, this year, it might be, he's going to stay in his core area. He's going to stay around his bed. So if you want to kill that deer, the probability or the, you know, the statistical chance that you kill him anywhere outside of his bed, his bedding area, probably not great. Right? Like you have a better chance of killing him there than you will anywhere else based on mm-hmm. the trend of the deer data, of the collar deer data. Right. If it says that he's moving to a transition area, or like it's a transition area day. What that's basically saying is the collared deer data on the 15th, you know, whatever day it is that that deer is more likely to move based on the data trends 
further from his bedding area or further from his core area on this day based on historical data, right? And so it essentially tells you like, how much risk do I make, do I need to incur on this hunt? You know, yeah. So is it, is this a day that I need to crawl within 80 bed, yards of the or, bed or, or can, can I hang hunt, back? Can I hunt the food, the transition, the, the, the food that's in the transition or, yep. you know, when it hits rut, they're of course full range, but that's not the only time that they use their full range. They use their full range at other times. When you look at color sure. ear data, you know, it's a little bit more sporadic, but there are trends and some consistencies around it. And so that's the one thing I used this year a lot was that to kind of look at like, how close am I setting up to an area where I think that this deer is bedded or, you know, or how far back off can I set and still feel like I'm in, like I'm in the game, you know what I mean? So I use that, um, you know, you know, all, all year. Um, and then as far as access goes, man, you know, that's just one of those things where, you know, we've all done it over time of, using bad access because it was the easiest and I'm, I'm guilty of it just like anybody else is over time. But like, I think as you, as you go as a hunter and you realize that, um, that you've probably killed more hunts and more opportunities, uh, before they got started <laughs> than anything by taking that bad access or taking that easy route in, um, it just doesn't make sense like to do all the work and then just screw it up with something as simple as that, you know? And so for me, it's like, I try to use a lot of, uh, as much water access as I can. Um, yep. and so I'll specifically kind of pick spots and scout spots where I have water access. And a lot of times I don't hunt far off the water, to be honest. Um, you know, it's like, I'll stay close to the water's edge for a couple of reasons. One, cause I like to be able to slip up out of the water and right into like a tree that I'm going to hunt and know that I can hunt that spot over and over and over again, because I'd leave literally next to no, you know, ground scent or no kind of impact to, to where I'm hunting because of how close to the water that I am, the water's edge that I am. And then I also like the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm getting some help with the, the wind current over the water and thermals and things like that. And just becomes a little bit more predictable, if you will, yeah. um, to cheat the wind if you need to, or, or, or whatever the case is. And so, you know, access for me is, is paramount, especially if it's a new area. Um, sometimes you don't know, but the one thing I'll do for that is like, I just, if it's an area that I'm not real familiar with, like I won't go in and dark at the, at dark, I'll wait till I have a little bit of daylight and I'll walk in with a little bit of daylight. It's like, I'd rather be in, I'd rather be stealth on my way in and get there late than get there early and, and, and bumble around and make a bunch of noise. Yeah. And so that's one thing I think as you go, you know, as a hunter is like learning when to be aggressive and when aggressive is hurting you. You know, it's like, there's no one gets an award for being at the stand early. Like, I mean, I hear people say like, oh, I get to this tree, you know, two hours before daylight. And I'm like, man, I'm trying to like, if I have to, I will, but like, <laughs> if I can get, if I can sleep an extra hour and get to the tree <laughs> and, 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 and <laughs> have the encounters I want to have them, I'm gonna sleep the extra hour. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's just yeah. my, my philosophy. Um, but there's no, there's no wrong way. I mean, if you want to get there early, get there early. But for me, it's like, how can I get there, you know, as quietly as I can and as, as smooth as I can. Um, the other thing I'll look for too, is like, I love hunting days, like right after a rain or even with like a little bit of rain as I'm walking in, because man, um, it's, it sucks once you get into your tree because it's hard to hear deer, you have to be on red alert and really have your eyes peeled. Um, but as far as for getting in, I mean, you're super quiet at that point. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, those are the days where it's like, if you think you know where something's bedded, those are the perfect days to try to slip in on a bed, you know, that as long as you got the wind in your favor on, on your walk in, 
you know, you can probably get within 60, 70 yards, depending on how confident you are with your setup skills. You know, at that point, you're only limited by how loud you may or may not be when you set up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit about, um, the other factors. So we've talked a lot about noise and you, you briefly mentioned wind right there. And I'm, I'm especially curious to, to hear a little more of your thoughts because I have been very guilty of having that ideal spot in mind. I get to the parking lot and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm like you, I hunt a lot of public and I'm just jacked that I'm the only one there, you know, <laughs> or, or that I'm, I think I'm going to be the only one on this place today. And it's like, I just black out and I wake up in the tree, you know, 20 feet in the air. Right. Like it's like, it's like, autopilot took over. I didn't pay attention to anything. And when I sit back to say, did I get in clean? I don't know. I don't know if I got in clean or not. So what are some of the other things besides sound that I'm, that I'm trying to worry about on my access? Yeah. I mean, I usually try to go in if it's a place that I'm I know that I'm going to hunt, you know, I'll actually, you know, there was a particular spot this year that I hunted. It was going to be the first year hunting it. And I had an awesome, I only got a chance to hunt it once. And I had an awesome encounter with a, with a shooter that, that I just couldn't, that just didn't give me a shot opportunity. But I actually walked in in the summer, like, uh, it was either, if it wasn't three times, it was at least two times where I went in and actually mapped my route and and did a dry run of walking in. So I knew what I was going to run into, like, where like was a briar patch I was going to get hung up in. Where's the down log that I'm potentially going to trip over. You know what I mean? Like <clears throat> I got to crack, I got to cross this one, like kind of like uh draw area. Like where's the best place for me to cross where I'm not sliding down the side of it and making a bunch of noise. You know what I mean? It's like things like that. And, and at least one of them, I went in the morning in the dark and did it like mm-hmm. as a, as a dry run during the summer, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go in the dark. And that's the worst time to do it, to be honest. Cause if you can do it, then you can do it anytime because that's whenever things are the thickest. Yep. It, for you sure. Know, you're going to have more foliage on, like there's still going to be leaves on all the brush and stuff like that. So if you can get in slick that way, um, you know, then, then you should be good once, once fall comes. And so, you know, I'll do things like that, you know, dry runs in, in areas. I don't use flagging tape or anything like that. If I need to know exactly where I like, if I, you know, like I'm said, like I'm using a, a map app. And so I usually map my areas in, you know what I mean? So I can stay close to the trail or however I'm walking in, but that's not, I mean, that that's like, a, you have a little bit of like play there. Like, you know, you could be like three yards, five yards off. And like, that could be the difference of like having to bushwhack and having like a clean area to walk, you yep. know? Yep. And so if there's any kind of sharp turns or anything like that, that I need to make, like I'll use a bright eye to kind of sig- signal that like, Hey, I need to make a turn here. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what I do is I take my bright eyes and I throw them in salt water and let them sit in salt water for a couple of days. And I let them lay out outside on my, uh, on my patio and let the air get to them and let them rust. So they look old. That way, when I put them up, they look like they've been there for forever. Dude, that's next level sneaky. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> okay. Like that, that way they look like they've been in the tree for forever. And, and I don't use them all over the place. I'll just use them like, like I need to know, I need, I know once I cross this draw, I need to make a left turn, but I need to see the bright eye because I don't know exactly how far up and it's a hard left turn. And if I, if I loop it, I'm going to be way off, you know what I mean? Yep. Or I'm going to, or, uh, or there's does that are going to be bed here. It's the other thing too. It's like when you're scouting and you're looking at your access, like think about where doe, like where does or deer might be bedded along your way. You know what I mean? Like that's the other thing. It's like, you don't want to kick deer up if you can help it, you know, as you're kind of walking in, especially if you're hunting like, you know, close to buck bedding or just in, in adjacent to bedding in general, whether it's does or bucks or whatever, especially does, you know, during the time of year where you want the does around. Um, 
So like, those are the couple things that I'll do. But I mean, the biggest thing is, is like, if you do nothing else, be quiet and try to have the wind in your favor as much as possible. And it's hard. You know, I know it is like, as you're walking through and stuff like that, but know where you can give it up too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and know when you can move quickly and when you need to slow down. Like that's the other thing. It's like, I don't walk in at a snail's pace the whole way, especially if it's dark. I, I make, I move and, you know, uh, cover ground as quickly as I can in spots that I can. And then I slow it down and take my time in areas where, you know, that, that that's required. Yeah. And you know, I've heard one other thing that I just want to throw in. I've heard a lot of guys talk about, uh, mixing up your access. So don't always mm-hmm. approach from the same exact direction. I honestly feel like I've had better success going the opposite route and doing something you mentioned, like map my map, the perfect access for this spot. Like it as good as, I mean, it made it, no access is perfect, right? We leave ground scent. We're going to get picked off at, from time to time, but, but pick the absolute best way in and let that be your only way in. Like, I mean, I think too, and, and that doesn't make sense, but like for what other guys have said, as far as like try to keep them guessing or whatever the case is, cause they do pattern us as much as we pattern them. But what I will say is that I'm typically not hunting a spot like more than twice. You know, and so for me, it's like, like that spot that I was just kind of explaining, I hunted it once, you know, I haven't been back since, you know, and so, and it was a one and done. The places I hunt more often are places that like I can get water access or whatever. I love places that are just like off a hiking trail, stuff like that. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that particular area I'm talking about, it's like, there's a, there's a, there's a trail that people like to. I don't know what they're doing, like whether they're hiking, mountain biking or whatever, but it's like, I use that as far as I possibly can because deer are used to people being on it. And and if there's sign close to it and there's food close to it, it's like, I'll hunt near it. Like, I'm not scared to do that either. You know what I mean? Because deer are just used to people being around it. I don't know how many times that particular trail, just in scouting and kind of walking in there that I've seen deer along that, that I was able to just kind of like walk by like does because they saw me and they were like, Hey, who's that? I just kind of motored on by and didn't pay them any attention. And they were, they just kind of, watched me and then went about their way. Like didn't spook, you know, they're used to seeing people there. Yeah. I've got a similar spot that not far off a hiking trail. And I could actually, once all the leaves are down, I can actually see the hiking trail, you know, hundred, hundred or so yards away. And, uh, not this past year, but the, the fall before I had deer underneath me and here comes somebody walking her two dogs. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh, here we go. This is going to be it. And the dogs are running all over the place and, you know, making noise and everything. And the deer just kind of look over at them go back to eating, totally mm-hmm. ignore them, you know, and just let, let the dogs walk right by. And that was yeah. it. Yeah. No, I definitely think, you know, if someone's hunting like a small parcel, I mean, I think it's really hard to like change up your access. You know, I, <clears throat> I think if someone's hunting a piece of private that is large enough, like a, like a, a farm or whatever, it's like, yeah, I, I agree. It's like you have a couple of different routes in, you know, is not a bad idea, especially if, if, especially like typically like the place you're setting up for, you know, you should really be setting up knowing where the deer are coming from and setting up for like one wind advantage opportunity. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, and you might have a couple of different like tree locations within the spot that you could potentially hunt on different, different winds. And you might need to use different access for those depending on how close or far away they are from one another or whatever the case is. But I typically am trying to set up, you know, in, in an area, I don't often get multiple winds that I can hunt. You know what I mean? It's like, usually it's good for one wind, and that's it, you know, cause the deer are going to come from here, you know, and I'm going to give the deer the wind as much as I possibly can, you know, and, um, really kind of risk it to a degree. Um, so they feel confident and which means usually I have like one access route in, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump on to the next the next piece. We got I got two more things from your initial answer that I that I still want to dive into. Man, cool. I I didn't know we could have made four podcasts out of this thing. <laughs> um, then the next one is you you said that you start to break down specific hunts. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through maybe just one hunt this year that you had and kind of tell me about the things that you're analyzing about about that hunt. Kind of take me through that process. Yeah. So. You know, the one I'll use, the one that probably sticks in, you know, I have, <laughs> there's three different ones this year I could choose from, unfortunately, that I had encounters that just kind of didn't go, didn't break my way. Um, but I'll use the one in Kansas this year because there was a lot more to learn from, from me, uh, from, from that particular experience um, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, Kansas was a new state I'd never been to before. Um, never saw Kansas until I crossed the state line. Uh, I wasn't in, I wasn't in Eastern Kansas. So I wasn't in areas where that we're going to have a lot of trees or anything like that. So it was truly, you know, if anyone's watched the white tail adrenaline guys, you know, Jared and those dudes, it was hunting like that. It was a lot of glass in front of a truck, you know, or glass in from top of like a, a knoll somewhere and trying to find a deer. And when you find them, try to go kill them. That was kind of, that was the, that was the play. It was all kind of spot and stock and, you know, ground hunting essentially, um, which was, you know, I do a little bit of ground hunting in PA if it, if it calls for it. And I've done it in the past in other States and stuff, if it's required, but it's not the sharpest tool in my toolkit. It's the one that I'm constantly trying to sharpen. Um, so it's going to be a challenge for me just in general. Um, there for two weeks and, you know, managed to finally get into some deer. My, my buddy Chad killed an absolute giant on like the sixth day. Um, and then we finally found like a, a piece of property and this was all public. We didn't have, you know, family or anyone out there to, to hunt private property or anything like it was all walk-in access and all all public um we finally found a piece where we were getting some consistent deer movement and this was like the s- third week of november i think and uh, i had a couple of days left of the hunt and we actually spotted a deer cutting a doe out and literally jumped out of the truck with a decoy and ran into the timber like i don't know what it was like 150 maybe 200 yards and set up and I mean, I never would have thought this worked in a million years. Like I, I was like, this is crazy. It's like, I'm never, we're going to see this deer. Well, sure enough, this deer walk came by at like 20 yards and it was a giant. And, um, I never saw him. Chad saw him. He was a little ways away from, me. he was filming. Um, and I was tucked in between some cedars and never saw him. We ended up seeing that deer again later that day. We just couldn't get him killed. Well, so at that point I knew I was in the right area. We were seeing consistent bucks and good bucks. Cause we had seen that one, which was like a 160, And then we had glassed another one that was probably like 150 inches um, uh, up in this, like, I guess it was a winter wheat field at the top of this kind of, uh, they're not mountains necessarily in Kansas, but high point, I guess, if you will. Um, and so Chad was actually getting ready to leave, uh, to head back to Ohio. And I was like, you know, I was, I had like two more days to hunt and it was like the next to last day. I was like, I'm going to go back in there, but I'm going to go to a different spot and kind of talking about what I was talking about before, where I, you know, was watching the wind and I knew I was going to have a good wind for my access. And I wanted to get to this Creek bottom but I didn't want to walk into the actual timber of this bottom until I got some daylight. Cause I really didn't know what it looked like. I knew what it looked like further up. So we were in there hunting that bigger deer that we found the, like the day before, but I didn't have a clue what it looked like down below, you know, and it was maybe half mile away from where I was at the day prior. And, uh, and so it was a, I had to walk to like this CRP field. And there was like this little knoll in the CRP field. And then like, you know, whatever it was like a 15 foot, 20 foot drop, 30 foot drop, whatever it is, like a gradual drop down into this creek bottom. And I was like, well, I'm going to set up on this knoll. I can get in there at dark and I'll set up there and I'll wait for daylight and, and I'll be able to glass. 
And once I glass, I'll figure out where exactly I want to go. Cause I had an idea of where the, how the deer were kind of moving that we were glassing. I kind of had an idea of where I wanted to set up whenever I was looking at my map. I was like, you know, I kind of probably need to set up the bottom of this draw, the cedar draw that's coming off the top of this, like this ridge. And it's not really a ridge, but like the high point. And uh, that's ultimately where I wanted to kind of get to. And so I get set up there. I'm in a ghillie jacket. I'm naked. There's nothing around me. I'm just literally in a ghillie jacket in the middle of the CRP field. And the CRP grass was like, you know, waist to chest high, roughly kind of got set up and I set up a decoy kind of preemptively because I was like, if anything comes in, I want to have a decoy set up to try to get the attention off of me. Is that a full body or like a silhouette or? Yeah, it's just like a, uh, what's the company called? Like a heads up. up. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Easy, light, packable. Um, so I got set up and like, as soon as daylight broke, I had a doe behind me at like five yards and I thought, I mean, she was super close. I could hear her chewing and whatever she was chewing. I could hear her breathing and I'm like, just keep going, keep going, keep going. This is a good <laughs> sign. Like you're moving in like at first light, like this is going to be like, I got a good feeling. So she finally kind of moved off and went down to this little like dip that kind of went into like the bottom. It was just, I guess, to like my East. Um, and I was like, you know what? I can see well enough. I was like, I'm not going to make a big move. I'm going to move probably 50 yards. There's a group of like three small cedars uh, next to this like uh, locust tree. I was like, that I'm going to try to get into. I was trying to tuck in between those trees. Like that, I feel like that would probably be a pretty good setup. Cause as soon as daylight broke, I was like, there's a big rub. Uh, there's a super fresh scrape. And as I was glass, I was like, man, there's another super fresh scrape right down there. I was like, I'm basically going to put myself in between like these two fresh scrapes with like that fresh rub. Oh, nice. You know I mean? like, nice. And so I was like, all right. I was like, I feel like I'm in the right spot. I was just getting ready to move. And I saw tines coming through the timber. And so, you know, and I'll fast forward here because what ended up happening was, is that deer kind of approached, uh, I, he made a scrape, hit that first scrape. I didn't get a chance to move cause he was, he was there. So I was stuck out in the middle of no man's land mm. and he hit a scrape. He went to turn around and walk away. I snort wheezed and he came back, saw the decoy, raked a tree, made a, made a fresh scrape and then came down and tried to get downwind of me. And at the end of the day, I was supposed to have a little bit of like a Northwest wind, which would have been like exactly what I needed for him to, to keep my thermals from falling into that like little bottom where that doe went and he got stuck behind brush. And I saw the fronts of his, his antlers and his nose and the front of his feet. And that was it. And he just turned around and walked away. And I'm pretty sure my thermals just dumped right down in there and, and, and he caught a little whiff and that was, that was all he wanted and he, mm. and he was gone. And so, and I was at full draw uh, and I was drawn on him, you know, and it just, however long, I don't even know how long that was, but it stayed on full draw for like a while. Cause I had one small window I needed him to take like two more steps and that was, and he was going to get it. Um, but looking back on that, on that particular hunt, you know, I did a lot of things. I did a lot of things right to put myself in the right position. Right. It's like I hunted smart, you know, kind of went off an of instinct. I kind of watched what the deer were doing previously, like while we were glassing them and kind of had a good idea where they might, where they might go. Um, I played it smart by like taking my time and getting in there and wanted to survey. Didn't want to just bust things. So if I would have just busted in there, you know, who knows where exactly where I was in my mind, where I wanted to set up in hindsight, I probably would have been right. Cause that deer walked right by where I was going to potentially go. Cause he wanted to go up that draw. And that's what I kind of assumed. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I couldn't see. So I didn't really know. I had my saddle gear with me so I could get into a tree if I needed to, or I could be on the ground if I needed to, you know what it means? So it was kind of like whatever the setup calls for, I can do either one. Um, so I played it right where, where I made the mistake really was. And when I kind of go back and I think about it, 
I'm not sure. Like I felt like I drew at the right time. Um, but I probably could have drawn just a touch earlier because I think it was a combination of, I think he heard, heard me draw or he caught just a little, I tried to do it while he was behind the brush, but I think, I think I drew probably five seconds too late. Okay. Yeah. Because like when he got behind, so there was like this down tree and people can't see I'm using my arms. Like we're looking at each other. <laughs> on the video. There was a down tree and he was here at this scrape by this down tree. And I could see him here. And my decoy was over, over here. And I wanted him to come this way toward my decoy, kind of like North, you know, or Southwest kind of towards my decoy. Okay. Right? When he came down to get down to this bottom, there was a down tree with a bunch of brush across it. Well, right here at my elbow was like a big pile of brush. And that's honestly where I should have drawn because as he kind of came down this little, this little embankment by that down tree and that brush, the brush got thinner and thinner. So I could kind of see his head and once in a while see an eye or whatever the case was. And that was when I drew was when he started kind of walking down that slope. So I felt like in hindsight, I drew probably five seconds too, too late. Okay. He stopped then when I drew, cause I think he saw movement. I don't think he saw him. Well, he certainly didn't see me cause he took a couple more steps. I think he just saw something move and wasn't sure what it was. And I'd already snort wheezed at him. So he was on alert. Yep. Yep. He, he was waiting to see another deer. You know what I mean? Or he knew that that buck was there or the decoy was, but he was, I'm pretty sure he probably thought that that deer moved, but which probably didn't make a lot of sense to him. Cause he was just right over here. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And so in hindsight, it's like, I probably drew a little bit too late. Um, I played the wind as, as well as I, as well as I could. It, what I may not have done in hindsight is I, I maybe wouldn't have snort wheezed at him. If I would have been a little bit more patient in hindsight, because it was pretty like, it was kind of a dewy morning. So like, I never heard him approach. It was pretty quiet. Like the grass was had a lot of dew on it. So it was pretty, pretty quiet. Like I never heard him coming. Um, what I could have probably done is I probably could have let him walk off to get out of eyesight. I probably could have got up and walked down to the bottom and kind of tucked in by that cedar and then snort wheezed. Okay. And, and probably got his attention to come back. Yeah. Because the crazy thing was, it was right after that I snort wheezed and I rattled to try to get him to come back in. Um, which I knew he probably wasn't going to, but at that point I was throwing a hail Mary, you know, I had one sure. more day to hunt, you know, and, and then I ended up having four bucks come in after that rattling sequence. Oh man. Like, like, so, well him plus three other bucks. So like three, four bucks total that morning and three bucks after I saw him, after I had a rattling sequence. Wow. Okay. So they were highly responsive. You, you well, hit it right. I knew that, so at that point I knew that there had to been a doe in the area because yep. they were all like all fired up. And I, uh, in hindsight, I should have, I should have kind of thought of that and I should have moved because I got hung out the dry on all three of those other bucks where I get, didn't get a chance to move and reset up. I was so fixated on trying to get him to come back, which I should have known that he wasn't going to because he got a little spooky. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I would just been like, as soon as he's gone now, let's move, let's get reset up. And then let's start, let's rattle and see what happens. I rattled too soon. And then I got hung out the dry again where one buck came in and saw the decoy and I was trying to get resituated to like get set up to potentially draw on him. And he saw me move a little bit and got spooky. You know, there's just so many things when you're on, the, when you're on the ground, it's like, you don't have the wind advantage because you can't get wind over top of them. So you gotta be real tight on your own, how you're playing the wind. You can't really cheat it at all. 
um, every little movement because you're at ground level with them. They'll see, yep. you know, what I mean? yep. like they can't see great, but they see movement like no one's business, especially mature bucks, man. I feel like they have like a x-ray vision to see movement. Like they, they <laughs> may not be able to tell what the hell you are, but they can see you move. Yeah, like, they don't you know like I mean? it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and so that was probably like the biggest thing. You have to pay attention to like to where your shadows are at, where the, where the, where the sunlight's coming in at, where the sun's going to rise and where it's going to hit when it rises finally and things like that. Like there's just so many things to kind of like take into consideration when you're setting up on the ground. And I just didn't have enough experience at it to like be properly set up and two, draw at the right time. And, you know, three being, you know, being patient enough. And that was the second time that not being patient burn us. Chad and I had one bedded that we stalked in from probably like 400 yards away. And he was bedded where we thought he was. We just got impatient and thought he'd blown out the backside of this draw and then went in to check out the draw to see what, what it looked like if there was any sign in there. And we got within 20 yards of him and kicked him out of the bed. He was bedded right where we thought he was. Oh gosh. You know, but we just, we should have sat there all day and watched him and waited till he had to get up to stretch, to take a leak, to take a poop, like whatever it was just to move Cause if we would have seen for sure that he was bedded where he was bedded, we could have actually worked the wind and came back around him and actually got up on this lip of this draw and maybe even shot him while he was in his bed, man. Wow. So it's like, how patient should you be? How aggressive should you be? Like, it's just all those things that I kind of play back in my mind of like, how could I have done anything differently? And in that one, I played it pretty well. Uh, but there were a few just like critical things that I made that I made mistakes on. And, and that's, and that's what cost me. Yeah. Just little bitty things. I mean, man, if, if, you know, the difference of five seconds on your draw potentially. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, looking back on it, if I'm in a tree, he's dead all day. Like every one of those, none, none of those things were, would have been mistakes in the tree. Wow. You know I mean, it's like, and that's yeah. the difference between in a tree and on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so for those listening, you know, how long have you been hunting? I mean, I started hunting whenever I was 12 you know, and I'm 43 now, you know, so I've been hunting most of my, most of my life. I mean, I took some time off in between cause I was a musician and was on the road and stuff like that during a period of time that that was my career. So didn't have a lot of time to be in the woods cause I was uh, on the road a lot, but yep. yeah, I mean, I grew, I grew up hunting. Yeah. So years and years. I didn't, but start, you- I didn't start bow hunting until I was probably 30 though. That was okay. when I started. That's when I started bow hunting. Okay. But, but still years and years of, of learning the right things to think about just learning to take apart each and every piece. And I think if people take away one thing from this episode, that's what I hope people take away is uh, learning to go through that process of saying, okay, where did the wheels come off? Like Mm -hmm. where, where did it go wrong when, when I had the encounter or if I didn't, if I'm not seeing anything, where am I going? Where am I going wrong? Um, Like, like you asked before, why, why didn't I get an arrow off? You know? And I think you covered that one pretty good. So well, uh, man, is there, is there anything else that you would, uh, leave the listener with when it comes to questions that you've got to ask this time of year, when you're trying to do your best to capitalize on the experience you gained over the, the course of the past season? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's any, you know, I, I think everyone is you know, so different and their goals are so different. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you're the questions that you ask yourself should ultimately lead you. And this is going to sound like a true, like strategist, right? <laughs> the questions that you ask yourself should lead you back to whatever your objective is. Yeah. Right. Like, so whatever your goal is, yeah. Um, you know, your question, your, the questions you ask yourself should directly answer 
that larger question of like what type of hunts that you want to have or whatever goals that goal it is that you want to fulfill. Yep. You know, me personally, you know, and however you, however you work best, you know, you know yourself best, you know, however you work best in order to do those things that are to get better at those things or answer those questions, like whatever that methodology is, there's no right or wrong way, you know, just, you know, figure out how to answer them. You know, for me, this is just my approach is I typically try to pick one thing, you know, one to two things every year that I want to get better at. And I'll focus on those, you know, in some years it's, you know, um, working a lot on my shot sequence, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, making sure that things are breaking correctly and that I'm as accurate as I can possibly be. You know, that's something I usually always work on every year, but like years past, I'd say probably two years ago, that was like a big focus of mine. Mm. I was, I was going through like a touch of like, target panic or anticipation, you know? So I worked really hard on that and it'll be a focus of mine this year. Cause I'm, I'm going to Idaho. So I'm going on, oh. a, I'll be, I'll be out West again this year. Um, and so longer shots. So shooting longer distances, you know, uh, expanding my effective kill range, essentially. Um, chasing elk, you know, chasing elk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, so that's typically my process. And then, you know, this year it's like one of the things the past couple of years is like, I, I just, the more I hunt on the ground, the more I like it. And so, you know, again, this year it's like find some very specific kind of ground setups, you know, when I'm scouting of places that I can be killer ambush spots, because a lot of times where there's ground setups, it's also the place where you get away from other hunters on public land because there's not trees to get into. So a lot of people will avoid it. And so those could be little kind of hidey holes you can find yourself. So long as the deer sign is there and stuff like that, it's not like you just go sit somewhere because it's no trees around could be no deer too, you know? <laughs> so you make sure that there's deer around and if there is, and it's a ground, a good ground set up, then it's like, you know, I kind of look for, I look for those types of things. So those are the things I'll be working on. And I, I just think, you know, you know, if you just actually ask yourself the general question of like, why didn't I have the type of season I wanted to have this year? Or if you had a good season, still ask yourself, like, what were some of the mistakes I made, even though maybe I filled a tag or even though maybe I had the encounters I wanted? Like, you know, you, you make mistakes probably almost every hunt, you know what I mean? And so just pick out some of those and analyze, you know, why they happened. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find more outdoor-themed podcasts at sportsmansnation.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you download your podcasts.